This is Global News Watch. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and Paramilitary Operations Officer for the CIA and current National Security and Defense Analyst for ABC News, Mick Mulroy, joins the Media Mavens podcast for a monthly review of global events and their impact in our lives. And here is the host of Global News Watch, the CEO of Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller and Marjorie DeHay with Media Mavens Podcast. We're here with Global Newswatch correspondent, former Pentagon Deputy of the Middle East and CIA, Mick Mulroy. Hey, Mick, how's it going? Great, Sarah. How are you guys doing? I'm good. I'm just laughing because it's been a week of podcast bloopers and bleeps and long titles. But I'm super glad to have you back on this month on what's going on with Global Newswatch. I think what we would love to spend our time talking with you I'm just going to say, I think you've been on for almost a year now as a reoccurring guest. You are probably the most badass guy we have ever met. But I want to go around the world. (laughs) I want to go around, Marjorie, I want to go around the world with Mick Mulroy because we talk about such intense topics of what's going on in the world. And right now we got a few things we're juggling. So I kind of want to spend five, 10 minutes just kind of going around the world again, an update of where we are, what's going on what we need to keep an eye out for, kind of the ground truth versus just all the White House truth we read in the press and media and spin. I mean, I know there's been a few updates in with Russia and Ukraine. So I kind of want to start there with you and get your input because I know you are ABC, CNN, you're all over so busy with what's going on in the world. But I want to kind of get a highlight of what's, I guess, news breaking since our last time we spoke with you in Ukraine right now. Yeah, so great to be with you, Sarah and Marjorie. This is this is an ongoing thing that I think we're going to be talking about for a while, but we need to because it's one of the most significant international events, not only going on now, but you know, and quite frankly, a long time. It's uh, it actually brings Russia close to and with the potential for a conflict with NATO, which I think by everybody's definition would be a world war, a third, right? So it is significant. Ukrainians, to give you a a brief update, the battle for the Donbass, which is that region in the east of Ukraine, that is very flat and it's very much conducive to what I would call a conventional battle, is shaping up that way. The Russians have numbers, so they're trying to make this a, a fight with attrition, which means they can overwhelm them and just deplete them. The Ukrainians are losing, I think, an average of around 75 soldiers a day which as you, the days add up in the months and the months and the multiple months, that's a lot of troops. And they just, that's tough. So they're relying on maneuver warfare, essentially outsmarting the Russians, getting them to go certain locations and then really concentrating their fires on that location is why they, why they pin them down. The Russians have taken, I think, around 20% of the country now, which is far from what they wanted. They thought they'd have the entire country months ago. But the Ukrainians keep getting advances in weapon systems, which is allowing them to take some of it back and definitely push back against their advance. So it is somewhat of a stalemate, but that is the, the update. The biggest thing uh, this week was the approval by the White House, what's called the High Mobility Artillery and Rocket System, the HIMAR system. So why that's important is it gives the Ukrainians the ability to take out Russian artillery outside of the range of the Russian artillery. So the HIMARS, and we gave them the least ranging system of the HIMARS, because we're concerned if they started shooting them into Russia, they could initiate this conflict between the NATO and Russia. So it's only about 80 kilometers or about 50 miles. Some of them that we could have given them go up to 500 kilometers. 
right? So anyway, it's a very effective weapon system. If you're shooting the long distance one, it's kind of crazy. They shoot so far up into the air before they come down that you have to like get clearance from NASA. It's, it's so significant. But it should give the Ukrainians an advantage now that they have not had to have fires that are out of reach, except for with aircraft and other law expensive missile systems from the Russians. You mentioned before we got started that one of the concerns is with Putin that there is a potential coup to remove from him. I know I brought up this article I sent both you and Marjorie, the top 10 most protected people in the world. And they're all bad guys. I mean, besides POTUS and the um, Queen of England, I mean, she's just not a bad person, but she's the most protected from the firm. Everybody else was bad people. Putin was the number one on the list. Is there any, tr- not any truth, but how realistic is it to get him removed from office to end this war right now? So I, I wouldn't say it's likely. If anything, President Putin's good at staying in power. He's obviously not a major military strategist, as we've seen in the war in Ukraine, but he knows how to play the Byzantine fight that is the inside of the Kremlin and the power structure of Russia. I think that just speaks for itself. Mikhailov, he's been there. And he's done so by essentially not trusting that many people and the people he does trust, putting them in, in power positions and making them wealthy, largely off the resources of the country, not to the benefit of the Russian people, but these oligarchs that you've heard so much about. And I think that is that is where if that power base started eroding, you could see a Putin revolt or a revolt against Putin and see a removal. I don't think it's likely. But I think it's pretty obvious to the Russian people, and I'm on, quite frankly, a lot with Russians when I do overseas media, their uh, arrogance has gone considerably down. They won't say anything against the Kremlin since they're mostly all talking from Moscow, but it certainly indicates to me that the Russian people realize this was a very bad decision by Russia. I know. So I was just going to ask you, Marjorie, because I know we want to go around the world and a few other topics. Is there anything you questions you have for Mick that we want to cover before we move to another part of the world? Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Mick, is the war crimes, because what has been very heavy is the war crimes coming out and people getting life sentences. And their arguments have been like, well, this was it was following chain of command. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how the chain of command works and how basically now people are saying, no, it's not chain of command and now getting these life sentences. Yeah, Marjorie, exactly. So the the issue is in the United States military and essentially every military, you have to have a chain of command and, and uh, those under a commander have to follow orders, right? That's, it wouldn't work. I mean, the military does horrendous things. It's obviously a dangerous thing in many cases, especially combat. and you know, following orders is just part of it. However, not only do you not have to follow an unlawful order, you really can't. You, it's not a excuse to say, you know, my commander ordered the systematic killing of non-combatant men, women, and children, and I did so because I was following orders. You can still be completely prosecuted, as can your commander, of course, because you're not allowed to follow unlawful orders. Most of the kind of crimes that we're seeing in Ukraine are really obvious. They're not, it's not like somebody has to go to a class to realize you cannot murder an elderly woman who is a non-combatant on the battlefield. I mean, that should be just intuitive to all humans. So these the war crimes there are particularly heinous. 
My understanding is the ICC has deployed more investigators than any time in their history because the enormity of the collection. And they're recruiting more to go because there is so many things being discovered once they're getting back into these cities that the Russians had occupied. That is these crimes and these, uh, I think, prosecutions that are going. But that's ultimately a soldier follows orders as long as they're lawful. If they're lawful, he or she is not responsible. And so if, for example, two countries are fighting one another and they capture a soldier who was just a soldier, um, they're entitled to all sorts of rights under the Geneva and Hague conventions because they're just a soldier, probably had nothing to do with the decision to do so. And as long as they're doing, you know, even if it's, you know, killing, you know, but it's killing the enemy because he's a soldier on the battlefield, that's not a crime. So you can't prosecute. You can prosecute them for committing crime, regardless of whether they follow orders. And you can just go up the chain of command if they are following orders. And if the ultimate chain of command lands with, in this case, President Putin, and he's doing nothing to change it, he's just as guilty as if he was the person that committed the crime. I just feel like, you know, Putin's never going to leave Russia and the Kremlin. He knows he's he's going to have to pay for what he's done. He's not going to allow that. I feel like what's devastating is that with these war crimes, certain people need to go in front of a jury and hey, they need to be tried for their war crimes against mm-hmm. humanity. But it, what's, we all know realistically, Putin's never going to be going in front of anybody. He's never going to pay for that. He's never going to get caught. And I think that's what's sex. I saw a thing that I don't know if, was, if I read this wrong. One of the Russian soldiers or a general was caught. He was being held as a prisoner. Mm-hmm. Got to go in front of the committee for war crimes. But then the Russians held a bunch of Ukrainian soldiers and they're not releasing them. I just think it's right. not a war of egos because Ukraine isn't fighting for ego. They're fighting for just basic freedom and their rights to be left alone. But I just feel like until Putin literally is his armies are defeated or we get get to him to make him pay for his war crimes and stop it. I just see this as being such a horrible, ongoing, unnecessary war of lives and humanity finances. I mean, just everything that's so disruptive around the world stemming from something that there's no there there. There's no end to this right now. I think that's what the most disturbing thing is. And the saddest thing about this whole thing. I know. I agree. I think, you know, there's a, I saw, I think some lady that was protesting for Ukraine had a sign that said, if Ukrainians stop fighting, there's no Ukraine. If the Russians stop fighting, there's no war. Right. So this is ultimately completely and utterly President Putin's responsibility. If he stops fighting, the war is over. The Ukrainians can't stop fighting because then they won't be Ukraine. So there's nothing to even negotiate with that, right? So the world, and I've seen this, I have friends on, I'm not a political person, but I have friends all over the spectrum. This is the one thing I've seen that absolutely unites them. And, you know, whether it's, you know, I live in a a small town in Montana, and no matter where I go and people want to talk about it, they like this is right and wrong. This is this is black and white. This is good and evil, and that's the way I think the Americans see it all across the spectrum, and Europeans and people all the world. So you're going to have Russia trying to do something against the will of the world. They're already an international pariah, and it's just destroying their country's economy, reputation, capabilities. I mean, it's it would be hard to see Putin swallow his pride and take a loss on this. Perhaps he can come up with a way, but I agree with you, Sarah. I don't see this ending anytime soon. Yeah. 
obviously anything that's news breaking, we always cover here with you and get you back on right away. But I want to pivot a little bit about what's going on in Iran, because I know they have leveled up to where they have what they need to actually pull the trigger on a nuclear war. And the concern is, are they still in talks with Russia? Is that a, on the radar for the Chinese? I mean, where do we stand with what's going on over in Iran right now? So the current administration, the Biden administration, has had a concerted effort to get us back into the JCPOA, which shorthand is the Iran nuclear agreement, which we exited in 2018 and we entered in 2015. So the President Trump elected to get out of the agreement unilaterally and President Biden's trying to get us back in, which would have put Iran back into compliance when it comes to the enrichment of uranium needed to get to a weapons level of uranium, right? And of course, for the Iranians, their benefit would have been they would have, we would have done some sanctions because we have very, very severe economic sanctions on Iran. So once we got out, I guess the Iranians decided that it was more in their interest since they were getting sanctioned to go ahead and try to get a nuclear weapon, which, I mean, obviously I do not want Iran to have a nuclear weapon, but you can, if you look at countries that gave up on their ambitions to have a nuclear weapon or had a nuclear weapon and gave it up, take Ukraine, right? So Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. And most people would say there's a 0% chance that they would be being invaded right now if they still had nuclear weapons, right? So North Korea, they didn't give up on their nuclear weapons. And now there's a 0% chance that we would ever move, I think, to occupy that because of the threat of a nuclear response. To give you another example, if you remember Gaddafi in Libya, we talked him into giving up his nuclear ambition, and he was shot dead in a ditch. So from the dictator perspective, not that it's righteous, but the dictator's perspective, having a nuke puts you into a different category. And you know, when it comes to regime lifespans, it goes way up. So we are on the precipice, according to media reports, the International Atomic Energy Agency says that Iran has enough enriched uranium to have a nuclear weapon. So I'm no nuclear scientist, or that still requires weaponizing it, which I don't think, to my knowledge, is that difficult if you have enough resources and connections, and you already mentioned their connection to Russia, but you also have to be able to deliver it. So that's why there's been so much interest and concern about Iran's rocket technology, putting satellites, which could be dual purpose into space, a rocket that could do that. And, you know, from a guy who would, you know, spent most of my time in the clandestine co-world world, you know, everybody's always thinking of these giant missiles that go intercontinental, but you could also put it on a ship, a barge or something that might not get any interest and could easily get into like the port of Los Angeles, not to pick on you guys, but it's one of the biggest, most important ports in the world. And then you, and you didn't have to build a intercontinental military. Anyway, I know we got a lot going on in Ukraine, but this could easily spike to the point of being just as equally important. I have a question. I know we talked about also um, drones a few months back. Marjorie, we really got into the AI and the drones and the danger of those. You know, and I know, Margie, you know, I want to get to your question on Iran before we move on. But we talked about this earlier, you know, when we pulled out of Afghanistan and with the Taliban about Russia's relationship with them moving in, China 
issue funding it. And then I know we talked about China had taken the long game on this with their own larger plans. Is because Iran is at that point now, is this, do you think, going to be on the radar or used? Is Russia going to try to get hands? Where are the relations on our international partners, China and Russia? Because they both are friendly and supportive of most of the Middle East initiatives from buying mm -hmm. nuclear, wouldn't know say nuclear stuff, but buying missiles, buying and supporting and funding ammunition. Are we in a different state of concern with these two countries now that Iran has the power to create a nuclear warhead to attack anybody? Or is that so far off anybody's radar right now still? So you're talking specifically about Russia and China's activities in the Middle East? or Okay, yes. yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's near constant discussion in uh, Washington, D.C., where you hear pivot. We're going to pivot to the Far East and pivot to indo Pakistan, which is the Far East. Or pivot, you know, at one time it was pivot other places, like back to the West Campus. I think, you know, for my part, I was just one voice up there. It's just a big waste of time. The United States should have global coverage. We shouldn't be pivoting necessarily. Maybe we're going to add more emphasis on one place, if that's what they mean. But essentially, we're never, it's not in our interest to just, okay, we're done here. And then there's some, so always going to be in the Middle East, always 100% going to be in the Middle East. We have key partners there. It is important both for its wealth. Oddly enough, you know, with the natural resources, particularly oil and gas, but also from it's just abject poverty, which of course creates the, the circumstances for conflict. Think Yemen, think Somalia, think Syria. And, you know, we say that Russia and China is a higher priority, which it is and should be. They're spending more effort in the Middle East. It doesn't make sense to think that, okay, we're going to spend more time in, on countering China and Russia elsewhere in the Middle East, even though China and Russia seem to be one of these all over the Middle East and Africa. So for my take, I thought we should always try to look at what we can do globally because the U.S., above all, is the most global country in the world right now with our ability, both economic interests, political interests, and military might. Now, one of the interesting stories since we, we got on China that I thought had come out in the past 24 hours was that China scientists are trying to take down Elon Musk's Starlink, his satellites. So they're actually having plans because they're talking about a something that's a private company that's trying to bring internet, but they've go, no, no, no. This has a huge military application. You're going to be over our airspace. We have the right to take it down, et cetera. I feel like that alone creates just another layer with the China-US relations. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Right. So China is very different. And I know you know this, Marjorie, but for everybody in the audience, I mean, we tend to group together China, Russia. Mm -hmm. China is about expanding its economic capabilities and absorbing its, the resources they need to sustain themselves. It, they don't like getting entangled with conflicts. They probably think both us and Russia, for that matter, are kind of dumb for doing that. Russia, of course, seems to want to be in any conflict that we have to do just so they can be the black hat. But specifically to this issue, it's probably twofold. I think we have enough very sophisticated satellites. I mean, we, the U.S. government, that we don't need Elon Musk's addition. I think they're probably more worried about their population getting unfettered access to the Internet. I don't know if that's the case with Starlink, but I'm guessing it is because that's probably more of what they worry about than anything else, that their massive population realizes that there's a whole lot of dishonesty going on and what they see and, and can't see 
on the internet. So that's my guess. And I don't know much about Starlink, but I spent a lot of time in developing countries and they were very excited about the prospect that this would be able to beam down free internet to those countries. And I thought that was a great thing because it really helps the level of the educational field, so to speak, you know, including with some of my godchildren, right? So, because they're so far out there that they could all of a sudden get, you know, high-speed internet, you know, that would be a really big deal in return. So that, I think, is probably what the Chinese are most worried about. They have a really big effort to make sure that their population sees only what they want. It's so good having you give us some of this in-depth of what's going on in the world. And every time we talk about this, we're talking about these leaders, the people, humanitarian lives lost. But I want to take the last 10 minutes I know you guys know this is coming. I want to focus on this is a humanitarian effort of people thriving and surviving and suffering around the world. But what we don't talk about is a military. And you have been a military guy. You've also been on the front lines. You've been former CIA. You've been down there. You know what it's like. And what I love about is that I'm going to call it out. You did just rescue a beautiful dog that is used in the military. And given some of our friends in the military, we see such unwavering loyalty with these soldiers to these dogs that are being used. And I feel like we talk so much about the military, but I feel like sometimes people may overlook these dogs that are being trained with Purple Hearts who've saved lives. I mean, a dog, if I'm not mistaken, did bark and tune in the team where Bin Laden was hiding. It wasn't a human, it was their dogs. And I feel like they're the reasons why we're taking down bad guys. They're the reasons why military is being safe, able to do stuff. But I feel like when we support the military, we are supporting more than just humans on the ground in boots. You guys have tremendous time and money and the most intelligent animals by your side that you take better care of than sometimes other people because those dogs, I mean, they're, they're family, but they're your partners. They keep you safe. You have them with you. And I did, see, we talked about the movie dog that was so true to have the um, PTSD. And I feel like we don't put enough time, attention, or support into rescuing these dogs, helping these dogs have a forever home, given what they've been through when unfortunately the soldiers die. And I want to talk a little bit about military in the sense of support has to go to the dogs on the front line, in addition to obviously human life. Can you talk about how that is? Because my only concern is where do these dogs go? Like, can we rescue them? They're so trained, but do they only pay attention to their handler where if anybody else goes near them? I mean, I know the dog's emotional when a soldier dies, those dogs are laying over their bodies for days, their boots, until somebody comes. They are insanely loyal and intelligent. But let's talk about how the dogs are treated, because they're treated just like soldiers, if not better, correct? They are. And, and soldiers treat them just like soldiers, if not better, for sure. And, you know, you mentioned like we, we rescued a puppy, which is half German Shepherd and half Belgian Malinois. And she really looks more Malinois, but they're very similar dogs. And they're the two biggest type of breed that the military uses, especially recently with the Belgian Malinois, which is one of the most athletic dogs. If you haven't seen the videos, you can just Google Belgian Malinois and see. But it's not just their athleticism. It's their utter and complete loyalty. It was a Belgian Malinois that was... Cairo is the Malinois. I got to know this now because I'm a uh, Malinois dad. Cairo was the one on the Bin Laden raid, and Conan was the one on the Baghdadi raid. But they're exceptionally gifted, smart, fast, 
They have a jumping ability. That's, I've seen them jump maybe 20 feet in, higher to get on top of a compound in a rock to go after shooters, right? And that's one of the things that they have the capable of doing. But the loyalty is, quite frankly, touching to people who are very loyal themselves, right? Your soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, they go fight on the front lines together are very loyal, and their dogs are too. And the loyalty easily, and I think naturally, and it's not just for soldiers, right? I could, I mean, most Americans right now is like, yeah, you're not telling them anything I don't know. But even the bond's even stronger because these dogs will go straight into, you know, a machine gun to save their team. So it becomes a very strong bond with the soldiers, the Marines that fought and making sure they end up in the right place is, is critical. And it's important that I think, I think that the movie Dog was great, not just because I thought it was a good movie and really funny. And then, of course, really touching. But it did. These dogs go through PTSD, and they need it. They need help at the end. And they get Purple Hearts. We some of these dogs. I mean, they're they're soldiers. They are get Purple oh, yeah. Hearts. And I know it's devastating to lose any animal family member. But I know it's harder for soldiers because those are those dogs, those best friends, literally, figuratively, that are jumping through fires, through bullets, anything they need to to save each other. And I love it. But my concern is, and dogs are not abused during training like humans you only go so far you guys don't push the dogs to do what they can't do my thing is when you guys jump out of airplanes with the dog strapped to you but they're covered that always freaks me out because i'm i'm not worried about you guys you'll figure out how to pull a parachute cord i worry about the dogs when you have to jump with them and put those situations so the guys they're jumping with are the most trained in this in the world so they're they're in very good hands and I, i've never jumped with the dog but i've talked to several who have most of them love it i've heard stories where they didn't like it so much and then they you know they cover their eyes and they don't quite know what's going on but i've talked to some of the guys that they get all excited and they just you know just like some of the guys right so but you're absolutely right they're not abused whatsoever i mean i don't think any soldier sailor marine etc would uh would allow it to be honest it just wouldn't happen but they are trained and they are they are combatants. If you have seen, and I have, you don't want to be on the wrong side of a dog, of uh, one of our dogs. It's, it's not going to go well for you. They're extraordinarily capable and they will fight to the death for their team. And that's why, just like our veterans who might have PTSD, some of these dogs have seen even more, right? So, you know, some of those type of dogs, to be fair, should never be with a family. They've just seen too much. But there are sometimes, you know, people live by themselves or somebody who might have more time to work with them and make them capable of being, we owe it to them. I mean, they're vets. In my book, they're vets. Maybe other people don't view it that way, but I view them as just, you know, one of my teams. So it's really helpful that people who are interested in helping reach out to the NGOs that do this kind of thing. And I think the actor in the movie, Dog, uh, ended up doing that and got two of them. So good on him. Are dogs that, because it, it's so intense and they're so loyal and they recognize military commands and, you know, their military dad. Is it hard to adopt a dog if you're not in the military? Because if you're a military person, you know these dogs. I mean, you're going to take better care of them than anything. You know their commands, you know their triggers. Is it hard mm-hmm. for like people, like if Marjorie and I, one of us wants to get a dog, we want to rescue a dog. Is it hard for civilians to rescue or when military dogs retire, is it hard for 
placement with normal family, civilian families, or do they look for military families first, just because there's more of an understanding on the behavior side? So I don't know the specifics. I do believe there's going to be a partiality toward the the, the trainer, the dog, the, the dog handler, right? Because they obviously have a great relationship and much easier. If that's not the case for whatever reason, perhaps the person still has a full career and they deploy all the time and they're right, but it's time for the dog to retire. Then I'm guessing the way how tight my unit or our units are that they're going to look for somebody in the unit. But if not, then I think it probably open uh, to families when it comes to these specific dogs. If you can't get a military dog, of course, you you know you can still rescue a dog. There's great dogs out there, but if you're looking to help with the military dogs, I, I imagine that there is an availability. And not all these dogs are as traumatized as the dogs we're talking about. Like a lot of work in military dogs are, are completely good for families. I mean, they have been, you know, they might have been a bomb sniffer. They might have guarded the base. They never, you know, never engaged with people as they're trained to do. So let's, I don't want to give the false impression that all these dogs have, you know, emotional problems. Some of them are some of the most well-adjusted dogs, period. But there are still need adoption in many cases after after their service. Yeah, Marjorie and I actually, know, we've been privileged to meet one of them, my friend Toner Pinsky, who was one of the SEAL team leaders. His mm-hmm. dog, Coda. Oh, remember, Marjorie, we were, I think, at the my, our office, and they had all you guys come in for the awards. And Coda just walks in the office. We have photos. Military dog lays on the ground. I think one of our friends wasn't feeling well. So she laid mm-hmm. down with coat on the ground, used her as a pillow. I mean, we've taken her for walks without Tony around. Tony had to rescue me because my car was stuck in an alley and I was lost. He was like, stay where you are. We'll come get you. And I see Coda just be bopping down an alleyway without Tony. Like, how did you find me? And so she's been through a lot, but the calmest, sweetest dog that any of us could walk. Uh-huh. And I know Marjorie, at the time, her son was like, I think, two or three. I mean, still a baby. Coda would just be so good with her little boy. I mean, so it's not all military dogs have that intense. Right. Like, yeah. We had seen some of the most tremendous dogs that we've had in our office that we wanted to steal and take home, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's, yeah, so this, people should consider, um, it's not just the dogs that have seen the, the, the war side of uh, combat. It's plenty of it. And they need homes a lot of them at the end of their, you know, end of their life, right? Because that's why they're retiring. So it would be really cool. I just, not to sound totally over extra on this, but one of my best, best favorite stories, I know it's going to suck to say this, coming out of Ukraine. And I know I've I'm texted this to Marjorie at odd times too. My best moments that I'm like, oh my God, that is the most amazing thing. Wasn't the war, wasn't the people suffering. It was, they left all of their belongings and shit behind. They had their little kids, like little four or five rows walking mm-hmm. on leashes and they put their dogs in the strollers. They had their cats <laughs> and their cats are strapped, their cats and yeah. backpacks. And when this, this old lady was there and people, you know, they were asking her, you got to go. She was not going to leave her. It was her little dog or her cat or one of each. She's like, why should we leave for animals to suffer at the hands of a human monsters? What she said, she was not leaving without her baby. So I know there was the story two military guys had to dig through to get her situated so she could strap her dog and the cat so they were safe walking out of the country with her. And I know we focus on, well, you know, human life, but you know what? These people, and I read this somewhere, I think in, got in business news, 
Ukraine is one of the top countries in the world that puts animals first, that are all about the animals and everything. And I just, you, you gotta love these people, you know, for just doing that and like strapping, walking in lines out across the border where they make their kids walk so their animals could be safe in their little wagons. And I just, those are my favorite stories I've seen out of this whole, I mean, I, mean, I hate to say that, I don't know if that sounds bad, Mick, but I just love those stories. Well, just, I think a famous saying that I don't trust people who don't like dogs, but I do trust dogs that don't like people. No, that is a true statement because I have a monster cat. And if you do Most like people somebody, that like dogs relate to them. Yeah. yeah. There's no there's no such thing as a bad dog. There's bad owners. That's how I always yeah, yeah, yeah. And I grew up with dogs. I know Marjorie had was beautiful red Doberman. I mean, we are Ooh. animal people. So I feel like you always have to look beyond the human nature of what's going on and look at how these animals are being taken care of. Yeah. Absolutely. It was so good to have you on, Mix. I just want to kind of capture everything. Marjorie, did we miss anything from rescuing puppies and dogs? What's going on over there? We were going to talk a little bit about Arctic exploration and how that impacts the world. Yes. There's around 30% of the world's oil and gas in the Arctic. So it is obviously a treasure trove when it comes to that. And because of the global warming, there has been more access to places that we potentially wouldn't have had, either wouldn't have had access or would have been really expensive, right? So basically the ice is melting. So I'm not a weatherman, but that is essentially what's happening. So, and you combine that with what we started talking about, the fight in Ukraine. So the fight in Ukraine has now pushed Finland and Sweden to become a partial, right? They, Sweden has been impartial, uh, non-aligned for 200 years. And his, his efforts in Ukraine has now caused them to want to join NATO, which I hope happens soon. Why are these two connected in my head? Because we are going to then place probably substantial, at least more, military in those two countries, strongly naval force, which helps in our efforts to explore and exploit the natural resources up there because it's right there. So there's a lot of people talking about that right now. So, And that's a long-term, really important resource that is untapped. So Russia might have made itself in an even worse position, not only from the sanctions, the export controls, the reputational costs, which I don't can't even calculate. But now, and then of course, the other thing we didn't touch is Europe is right now cut off 90% of its energy purchases from Russia. There's about three countries left. So they're going down, down, down. And this just adds to that. I think you'll see a lot of NATO exploration, particularly the United States, looking for the resources that will be available up in the Arctic, particularly as it becomes easily or more easily accessible. Mick, it was so good having you on. Give us an update on this. I know you're at the Global Institute. So if anybody wants to reach you for any reason, they're to get hold of you at Global Institute, L-O-B-O Institute, and you guys are an NGO. Is there anything you could throw out if people need more information on news? Where's I mean, I know you're with ABC News. Where is a great, reliable news source that people could really go to where they could trust this isn't a spin and media BS? I mean, where should we direct everybody? So I'm definitely partial and biased toward ABC News. And I and you know, and I and I mean that not just because I do work for them. I see the inside of the folks that work there or the inner workings of and I just think they do an exceptional job trying to report the news. Only the news 
without any of any particular agenda. That, that's just the way I've seen it from there. And I think I see that when I watch it. It is a problem, I would say, with, you know, on both sides of kind of an agenda-driven news element out there. I don't know that I would... What I try to do, and my partner at Lobo, Eric Ulrich, our Navy SEAL commander, if we're not watching ABC, which both work for, we switch back and forth deliberately. You know, whether, you know, we're non-political, but whether you're on the right or left, you should force yourself to listen to the other side because you're not going to hear it on either of those two sides, and which means you're not really informed. If you only have half of anything, you're not, you're certainly not fully informed, but you're not really informed. So I, if people were asking my opinion, I would say force yourself to do that. Find the one you think is most accurate, but also watch both sides of the argument and just make yourself. Uh, and then you're more informed and make your own decision. Where is like BBC? I like BBC. <laughs> I, I feel like they're more neutral. Than I feel like BBC yeah. and CNN have been my go-tos other than ABC News, you know, the yeah. global level. Uh, I, I do. So I when I run in the morning, I listen to BBC. And why? Because they cover a wide wrath of what's going on in the world, places and things that are, I think, important. But they, it just doesn't make the news in the United States because we're so sometimes absorbed with ourselves. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. But there's like big things going on in all parts of the world. And I just find that when it comes to that, BBC is so good. And I don't really know their politics, so I don't even know if they're trying to get an agenda. So I just I use BBC for my international they're they're yeah. good. They, they 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 take they're like Switzerland. They they don't take sides when report news. It's such a great news source. Where for people who are interested in supporting the military, the dogs, rescues, or just donations, because a lot of people donate to the military, clothes, shoes, books, everything. They may want to donate <laughs> dog biscuits, food, leashes. Where is a good place to help support military dogs? So I don't have a specific, and I'm not belong to, I mean, we belong to a lot of volunteer groups, but I don't, not, at least not as of yet, a lot of ones when it comes to military dogs. I, I think it'd be easy if you Google adoption, military working dogs, and that would be a good place to start. I am sure also there's means and groups that do take in donations for the dogs as they serve, right? Because they need things too. Now, we're the mil- U.S. military. We have plenty of resources to take care of our dogs. But I think sometimes they want, they know how strong people's connections are to dogs, particularly in the United States. And they want them to feel that connection, not only with dogs, but the military. Yeah. And military dogs do a great, they're great ambassadors. And I think that's probably, it would be a great thing for people that are interested. It's basically just, if you Google those type things, you will see there are many organizations and I think it would be a great thing to be involved. And I think we should put a picture of mixed dog on the Media Maven's website and then do <laughs> resources to go that people can support. I think that is a brilliant idea, Marjorie. Honestly, we will be posting Riley to the website on a global news watch and we'll find the best military link support dogs and we will post it and have a donation button. That's a brilliant idea. We'll so it's Finley, though, just so you know, Finley. Finley, which is I, which is Irish for courageous one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Why am I not surprised? It's an Irish name. Yes, Mary Finley Mulroy. We will put Finley Mulroy on the website with the donation to help yeah. support dogs. You are a new dog dad, so congratulations. 
Thank you. On that, we look forward to talking to you and Finley more next month on our next podcast. But thank you, Marjorie. That is a tremendous idea. So Mick, we will alert you when Finley starts getting, you know, inquiries to be on shows and interviews because she'll be sharing your spotlight on the podcast. That'd be great. It was so good having you on. Until we chat with you again next month, have a good afternoon. Have a good week. Love the dog. And Marjorie and I will talk to you in another four or five weeks. All right. See you later, guys. Thank you for joining us for Global News Watch. To find more podcasts and to learn more about our host and guests, please visit MediaMavensPodcast.com. Thank you for joining us for this special podcast report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.